Open up your Bibles with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. As we come to our continued study of this epistle written to the first century church, we have landed on a very important verse here. Uh, they're all important, amen, but this one has particular practical significance. I hope that you've already recognized that and want to agree with that statement as it deals with the doctrine or the topic of holiness. Hebrews 12, and let's back up to verse number 1 and I'm going to read down to 17 and then we're going to come and concentrate the rest of our time on verse 14. Hebrews chapter 12, hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of our Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, 
when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us go to him in prayer. O Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause and we quiet our souls before your holy throne. And O Father of heaven, Father of lights, as your adopted sons, and as your adopted daughters, we, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask, O God, that you would teach us, that you would, dear Lord, help us to pull every ounce of spiritual nutrition out of this text, Lord, that we may be strengthened for the race that you have called us upon, that, O God, for those who have fallen in a ditch to the left or even to the right, that your blessed Spirit would use the truth and the right handling of this word and this passage to bring us up, O God, and to lift up our hands and strengthen our knees and continue to run on the correct path to pursue holiness in our lives. We look to you now, O blessed Spirit of God, and we ask that you would come and that you would instruct and that you would teach each one of us. We ask this in the name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we return back to verse number 14, dealing with this new covenant. I emphasize a new covenant. This is for Christians. Obligation or duty. And it is to pursue something. It is to pursue holiness. We saw that last week. We also noticed something else, just by way of recap last week, that this command to pursue holiness, sometimes translated as sanctification, we saw that it was vitally important. Why? Because you see the non-negotiable admonition there, without this, no one will see the Lord. And so this makes it of paramount importance to those who claim to be new covenant participants, those who have experienced true, genuine conversion, to set up and pay attention, right? And we also noticed last week that it's very dangerous. Why is it very dangerous? Because if we misinterpret this, it has the results that many cults have been formed by of damaging the unity of the church and destroying in many ways the joy, the happiness, the vitality of a Christian's experience in the new covenant which Jesus Christ had come and bled and died for so that you could possess and you could have. He doesn't want, in other words, for us to go back to the bondage of the old covenant. And so it's dangerous in how we define the holiness or the sanctification that's being described in verse 14. Now I had chosen the way to approach this topic of how to properly define holiness here so that we glean out of it, we extract out of it everything that's necessary for the happiness and the joy of a new covenant believer by first looking at the common mistaken errors of what people believe biblical holiness or sanctification is. And if you recall last week, we said that usually errors or wrong concepts of holiness falls into two mistaken categories. 
Those are doctrinal or theological categories, meaning people misinterpret or misapply God's word. And so they come up with erroneous teachings about biblical holiness. You may recall under that category, we looked at Christian mysticism early on in the church and still is being practiced by many Roman Catholics today in some way, shape, or form. And then there was the, the, the Christian perfectionism or the complete sanctificationism. That was originated with John Wesley and still believed by many Bible holiness churches or modern day Methodist churches. And then in a kind of indirect way, but still connected, we looked at the theological error of antinomianism, which is this idea that since I'm saved by grace, it's almost a, a view of grace in a hyper way, that the moral law of God has no instruction for me as a Christian. It doesn't serve for me as guardrails for the way that I think, act, or speak. It's just there, but it really has no bearing on me. That's for non-believers. Closely connected with antinomianism, this indifference to the moral law of God, which easily is articulated. You remember it began with a Protestant German reformer, and it is still in the circles of the Reformed Calvinistic churches. Closely connected that, on the flip side, was the idea of outright legalism. Uh, you got the antinomian who's indifferent to the moral law of God, and then you have the real legalist on the other side that says, no, the moral law of God is there, and we must obey the law of God, the moral law of God. We must use it and implement it and apply it in our life so that we can be saved. And they use language such as, you know, God infuses us with his holiness, dangerous language. If you ever read a book, commentator, no matter who it is, and they use that kind of language, you were infused at conversion with God's holiness. And now with that infused holiness, we now participate with God to achieve greater levels of holiness in order to become saved. Well, I was pointing those out. Why was I pointing those out, beloved? Because I know you. And I know myself. I know my own family. We are on the internet. We are at the workplace. We're in the uh, Western Christian country of America. And there's many people who profess to be Christians. And you are going to rub up against those ideas. And so I wanted you to know what the counterfeit is so that today as we begin to explain what true biblical holiness is that we're commanded to pursue and to grow in in verse 14, your little radars would go up. And you would say, wait a minute, that sounds like this or that sounds like that, right? That's why I wanted to choose that method of doing that. Now, we ran out of time last week to get into the second category that often manifests itself as a wrong understanding or a wrong concept of biblical holiness. And that is taking the doctrine of holiness and applying it in the practices of our lives that eventually... It usually doesn't start off with this purpose, but in certain Christian church cultures or in family cultures or even in individuals' own life, their identity as a Christian begins to think that such practices or such traditions, such ceremonies are what make them sanctified or make them holy. And so you have the real theological errors And closely connected with that, you have the practical errors of the wrong concept and understanding of holiness. So I want to walk down through this category. You could say the the wrong concept of holiness as practice in a believer's life. And then after we look at that, we'll start getting into what is 
the holiness or the sanctification that is being commanded in verse 14 that we're to follow. So let's get started here with the practical misconception of holiness that's described in verse 14 that ought to be very important to each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Now before I continue, beginning certain examination of practices or application in the people's lives, I want to make something very clear so that I'm not misunderstood. Some of the practices which I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to share with you this list of practices um, in a way that's unique to my own Christian experience. You may have some overlapping experience in your own walk around other people or yourselves. And so I'm not presenting these particular practices for any specific reason. Like these are the grosser errors in the church that I see. These are just my own Christian experience and you have your own list. Now before I examine any of these practices, which can develop into misapplied misunderstandings of the concept of holiness... I want to say something very carefully so I'm not misunderstood. There are many Christians, I believe, that sincerely approach some of these practices that we're going to talk about, and they approach them sincerely with the desire to follow the Lord in something that they have studied and they are applying their lives. And so they're convinced in God's word as the Holy Spirit has convinced their conscience of how it should be applied in life. And if that's the case, beloved, it should never be condemned. It should never be jested at by any other believer. It should never be mocked or teased or made fun of. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has led that believer to understand a portion of God's Word and a principle that manifests itself out in the, li- the way that they live their life or the way that they practice their life. And it is never your responsibility, it is never my responsibility to lay our hand upon the conscience of another blood-bought brother or sister. So I want to be clear about that. Where there is a sincere deep studied conviction a person possesses and they live out a particular practice in their life. It is never to be mocked at. It is never to be condemned. However, we must also acknowledge that there are many Christian practices, some of which I'm going to touch upon, that are handed down and blindly accepted as tradition. Whether it is in a family whether it is is in a church context, a denominational context, you're right, or just in a larger Christian cultural context, and it's never really fleshed out in an individual's own study of preparation. No, I do this because it's a reflection to everyone else outside of me that what I do and what I'm outwardly showing proves that I'm holy proves that I'm sanctified. It is this that I'm seeking to correct. It is this that's the wrong concept or the wrong understanding of holiness. A blind acceptance of a particular tradition in one's mind thinking it by practice makes them holy. That is not the holiness that you were to pursue in verse 14. Well, what are some of these practices that sometimes we as Christians can fall into and thinking that they make us holy. 
by practicing them, by advocating them, by writing long articles and blogs on the internet and doing hour-long podcasts on them. They're out there. Here's my first one. I list these in no particular order. Again, you're going to have your own. And uh, by way of extemporaneous preaching, I'm just going to use one that's not on my list here that happened just this morning. We have our beloved brother amongst us this morning. You may notice that he has a haircut. It's quite different than his former haircut. Sorry, brother, not to put you on the spot, but I told you I was going to do this. And he walks in and everyone immediately noticed. Hey, you got a haircut, right? It's up off your shoulders, etc., etc. He, knowing anyone who knows his character and his wit, he said, yeah, and next week I'm going to shave the rest of my head And like the monks did back in the early, you know, medieval times. And then that can demonstrate to everyone else that I'm more holy. Ah, you see the connection? Now, now we kind of jest and we kind of laugh. But I kid you not, friends. There is this incipient culture in some churches that if you have shoulder-length hair as a man, it's a demonstration that you're immature or you're less holy or your, your, your holiness, your sanctification in your Christian life should be under suspicion, you see. And those, of course, right, who got the nice clean haircuts, parted on the left or parted on the right, right? Uh, or those, here you go, we're in the reform circles. A lot of men have beards. By the way, I had my beard before it was cool to have a beard. But we're in those, and, and, and in some circles... Uh, if, you're, if you're a man with a beard, have you ever heard of this? I'd like to see a show of hands. Then you're looked at as suspicious as you know, being less holy. That's worldly. That, that's, that's something you know, that just calls into suspicion your maturity as a Christian. And then, of course, the deduction is those who are clean-shaven, clean-haircut, or what? Well, they're holy. They're more mature in the Christian faith, right? That's not the biblical holiness we're talking about in verse 14. Or how about this? The belief that if I abstain from tobacco and or alcohol use, well then my abstaining from that makes me more holy or spiritual than a believer who does participate in those things. Now friends, I personally don't drink alcohol. I personally don't use tobacco products. And I could give you 101 reasons why those things are harmful. It's not wise. It's just a dumb decision to do, etc., etc., But abstaining from that does not make one holy. It does not make one more spiritually mature than the next person who partakes, right? And so we have to prevent ourselves from ever thinking that they do. Or this one. About the belief that I've never been divorced in my past, whether as a Christian or not as a Christian, and so therefore, since I got a clean marital record, I'm more holy. I'm more spiritually mature because those who have had a divorce, even though I don't know the details, and believe me, friends, there's no divorce that's squeaky clean. Sometimes they are, but most of the time they're not. Uh, there's this suspicion, right? Oh, there must be something up with their holiness. There must be something going on there in their sanctification process that, that needs to be worked out. But me, I've never been through that. You know, I've always done the Christ-like thing, and I've always prevented that from happening in my marriage. So therefore, right, we can kind of pride ourselves. I'm more holy. I'm more spiritually mature than that person. Or, and I can already tell I shouldn't go through all these. I'm not going to have time. 
We can apply this to the way that we educate our children um, or how our children in our homes, our adult children especially, if they are converted and walking with the Lord and following the rules of the church, it's a reflection of me as the parent, my own holiness, my own spiritual maturity. Because look at my kiddos. They're all walking the line, right? Oh, that's a reflection on the parents, that they must be holy. The view that if someone holds an office in the church, that makes them more holy. Wrong concept. Now, I have more, and you have your own lists, and perhaps you're carrying old scars where you carried some of those beliefs, or you have your own. And the Holy Spirit at one point had to prick your heart of how disgusting it was for you to think that you were more holy or more sanctified than someone who didn't exhibit those particular practices. And I'm sure you have your own. But chances are, we never said, or we have never heard anyone say, something like this. You know, I believe that I'm more holy or that I'm more sanctified than other people because of such and such practice in my life. It's very rarely ever articulated like that, is it? I mean, if someone just came out and said that, immediately we would see them as a very narcissistic and prideful person, wouldn't we? Or have you ever heard someone say, you know, by such and such practice, it proves that I am a holy person. And you should pursue, according to Hebrews 12, verse 14, the type of holiness that I'm exhibiting in my life. Well, friends... It hardly never is articulated in this way. However, even we as genuine Christians can very easily fall into a ditch of subconsciously believing that our well-thought-out and even applied convictions that are indeed grounded and rooted in biblical principles prove And make it clear, I am a holy person. It's never articulated away. But listen to what I said. We could easily fall into the ditch of subconsciously beginning to believe that our well thought out and studied convictions that are indeed founded upon God's word are what make us holy. Or they are tokens and evidences and proof as outwardly that I am holy. Whenever this subtle or stealthy error occurs in your Christian identity, the necessary and the logical conclusion is simply this. Whoever else is not practicing outwardly this holiness the way that I am is either A, unholy, two, they are deficient in their maturity, meaning they're grossly immature, or three, They're in unrepentant sin. If we as Christians understand practicing holiness in a way that outwardly it proves or that it makes us holy, logically it infers those who are not practicing it are either unholy, grossly immature, or in open, unrepentant sin. And they will never see the Lord according to Hebrews 12 verse 14. If that is our understanding of biblical holiness and sanctification. Now, to help correct such errors, I've given it to your notes, and we'll draw your attention to a quote from Horatius Bonar, 
who draws us to the reality that this is something much more than just what we do outwardly. And if that's what we're banking on as our understanding of holiness, what makes us holiness, what proves us to be holy, then we are in really deep trouble. He says, biblical holiness is not an external thing we do or don't do. Biblical holiness, being referred to in verse 14, is not an external things we, we do or don't do. It is not made up of showy moralities or acts of goodness or picturesque ceremonies and graceful routines of devotions, nor is it emotional sentimentalism, no matter how bright or somber, nor is it religious utterances upon fitting occasions. No, it is something deeper. It is something truer and more marked than that which is called deep and true among modern religious philosophical terms. So if Bonard is correct, and I do believe he is correct, what this means is, is that those who abstain from such certain practices, they cannot run to Ephesians 5.11 and claim the holiness high ground by those who partake of certain things by quoting, they have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Therefore, I have holy high ground on you because I don't partake of those things. Well, no, wait a minute. Biblical holiness technically is not defined by that, by what you do or don't do outwardly. So you can't do that. You can't run to Ephesians 5.11 and say it and use it in such a way. But likewise, on the other side of the coin, those who are partakers or participants in certain practices and activities... They can't run over to Romans 14, can they? And claim holiness high ground by viewing themselves as more spiritually mature or holier than their brother, who is, of course, weaker in certain matters of disputed things and or practices, and say, I'm more holy, I'm more spiritually mature, you see, because I've arrived and I know I can do and partake of these things. Here's how I want to apply this. Okay? If either the abstainer through certain practices, what I can and can't do, or certain partakers look down their holy noses at the other party and pities them for not arriving at the state of holiness as they possess it and being manifested externally, according to Bonart, they only evidence the fact when they do that that they don't have the foggiest idea of what true inward biblical holiness is. I want to be clear about something here. Here's something I am not saying. I am not saying, friends, that inward biblical holiness that you are to pursue doesn't manifest itself in discernible, objective realities in your life. It most certainly does. It most certainly does. If it didn't, there would be no need in the subsequent verses to say, abstain, that's a discernible, objective reality. Pursue biblical holiness. First understand what it is and possess it and pursue more of it. And by the way, abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from covetousness. Abstain from being rebellious to God-ordained church authority. 
So you see, what I'm saying is that true biblical holiness, as we will see in a moment, it does manifest itself in discernible objective realities in one's life. But let's be clear, as you see in your notes. Friends, it is not what makes someone holy. It is not what makes someone sanctified before God. Because when you fall into that ditch, one of the most damaging results, as it says in your notes, to true pursuit of biblical holiness is not properly defining it. And is when we substitute it with our own blind traditions and our own practices that are just taken blindly and we create our own definitions of biblical holiness. Well, this moves us into our second heading, as you see in your sermon notes. If self-produced outward holiness that I just talked about is not what's being described in verse 14, and if other various theological errors about what biblical holiness is is not what's being described here, then the most logical question we should ask is, what is the holiness being described in verse 14? Having moved aside the doctrinal errors, having moved aside how sometimes, doesn't necessitate it always, but a majority of the time certain practices, ideas, and concepts can cloud our understanding of biblical holiness, having that all aside, let's now ask the question, what is the biblical holiness? What is the biblical sanctification that he is calling us to pursue in verse 14? And the way that I feel we must do that, beloved, is get to that answer by three separate paths that lead up to the pinnacle of the answer. The first path is laying again an understanding of justification. Because when many people begin to talk about and charge and command us as new covenant people to pursue sanctification, to do something, the language very quickly gets clouded and mixed with how, in fact, we are really made holy before God. And and it starts clouding and, 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 and misappropriating certain doctrines such as justification and our adoption and things like that. So when we come up these three different pathways to the answer, we know that we are on sure and solid biblical ground with what's being talked about in verse 14. And why do we have to be so certain? Because of the importance of it. Without it, no man will see the Lord. So then, let's begin with justification, leading us to the answer of what is the holiness described in verse 14. Well, what do we mean by biblical justification? Very simply, by justification, we mean What is the legal grounds upon which a condemned and sinful man can be declared pardoned and cleansed and made holy? Made holy. Actually made holy. He's a condemned, filthy sinner. Condemned in his own sins. But how can he be justified? How can he actually be made holy? Well, I give you a sampling from our Baptist Catechism which is really kind of a framework. It's a roadmap to get us to the biblical answer. Notice with me in your notes there. What is justification? Notice, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and He accepts us as righteous or you could say holy in His sight. This is biblical justification. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Notice how one is justified. By God's free grace and by the imputed 
righteousness of Jesus alone. And it's acquired by faith alone. So whatever verse 14 means, it can't possibly mean this. Because you can't pursue that yourself. Right? You can never pursue righteous, pure holiness before God except by faith alone in Jesus' blood-toning sacrifice alone. Now, let's not take the words of a catechism. Let's not take the words of a preacher. Let's go to the Word of God. This is all over the New Testament. The citation, oftentimes, from the catechism is from Romans 3, 23-25. I gave it to you in your notes. Look with me. The inspired Apostle Paul said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the condemned sinner who needs freed. He needs pardoned. He needs justified. He needs saved. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, or that is, a payment, a ransom. Jesus is set forth through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. We learned this in the epistle we're in now, back in chapter 3 when we were there. I'll just read it to you. You don't have it. He said in verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved Him, that is Christ, to be made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliation. There's that cousin word of propitiation or ransom. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So by this we know that the holiness being talked about in verse 14 is never to be connected with why or how we are accepted by God the Father. Never. Our acceptance by a holy God, our acceptance by a holy Creator is based upon the perfect holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's obtained, we just saw, by faith alone, through grace alone. Praise be to God through the great high priest and mediator, Jesus Christ alone. So listen carefully, friends. All systems, all religious systems that seek to make man's holiness or acceptance with God in any way dependent upon his own merits or his own acts of goodness outwardly performed, whether it's his choice when the gospel presented, whether it's his good life leading up to the hearing of the gospel, or whether it's his good life and his good deeds and his good works after he has become a Christian. Any system that connects those merits is straight from the pits of hell. It is a confusion. It's a conflation. It's a a clouding of how we are actually made holy by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul sternly warns in Galatians 1.8, Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, that which has been preached unto you, let that man be accursed. You are justified. You are made 100% pure and holy in a legal sense before God by Christ and Christ alone. That is, and it has to be the first step you take to understand what the holiness is described in verse 14. Because when that takes place, 
The free grace of God sending forth His Spirit, opening your eyes to your condemned state as a lost sinner. And you say, yes, I know, God. Your Spirit has shown me the vileness of myself. Yes, other people look at me and think I'm great. Other people look at me and think I follow a lot of great Christian rules and values and morality. But deep within, I know my thoughts are wicked. I know my thoughts are rebellious to authority in my life. I know my thoughts are vile, God, in Your sight. And when the Spirit pricks the conscience that way, the person prostrates themselves before the free grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They are humbled. And they say, oh God, thank you for the salvation. Thank you for making me one of your sons and daughters. You see, there's this ultimate radical change in disposition of a heart. Now, not an enemy, but as a child. And this is what we call adoption. So there's justification, the work of God. He saves a person and he brings you. Now next Sunday, I'm going to hope to excite us and and encourage us in the sanctification that we're about to tiptoe in, the proper definition, with this aspect, brothers and sisters, this beautiful biblical truth of adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High Living God. You are a princess in the city of Zion, young sister. You are a son, brother, in the city of Zion. You are a son of light. You are a son of goodness, a son of purity, a son of all the virtues that are bestowed in the kingdom of God. You are described in His Word as a new creature, one who has been born again, one who has new life, new appetites, new zeal. You are, in other words, an adopted son or daughter. Well, what is biblical adoption? You see it there in the Baptist Catechism. Question number 37. Adoption is an act of God's, again, free grace, whereby we are received into the number. Oh, friends, underline this in your notes because we're going to park here next week. We're going to just marinate in this as His sons and daughters. Brothers and sisters, we have a right. Christ through justification has afforded us the privilege and the right to be the sons of God. Oh, we have been brought into a family. We have a new identity. We are brought into God's number. And we have a right now, a blood-bought right to all of the privileges of the sons and the daughters of God. 1 John 3, 1, you have it in your notes. This language, this familial language of a heavenly father bringing unto himself sons and daughters by Christ through this adoption says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Think for a moment, we us who deserve nothing but the condemnation that our sins rightly deserve, but that we condemn sinners if we're honest with ourselves that we should be called the sons of God. And therefore, it goes on to say, the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. Now, in the circle of adoption here, leading up to our answer of our question, what is the holiness and sanctification talked about in verse 14? Recall, that one aspect of our new covenant adoption as sons, which has been highlighted particularly here in Hebrews chapter 12, is God's fatherly chastening. 
God's fatherly discipline, God's fatherly discipling. Or that is, as we learned, His working within us upon those things as His sons and His daughters who He loves, working upon us in our lives, in our hearts, upon those things which in due time, when they have been performed, enable us to partake of His holiness that's described in verse 10. Wait a minute, Pastor Doug. The implication of what you just said is that those things, when God's fatherly chastening hand wishes to operate and work on in my life, if it's not accomplished, if not in due time, it's performed, are you saying in verse 10, I might not partake in His holiness? And that's exactly what I'm saying. It's exactly what I'm saying. And we'll get into that next week. Oh, when we look at the holiness of God, the good things of God that we have a right and a privilege to. But brothers and sisters, as adopted sons and daughters, if when God is doing a work in our lives and we cross our arms and we puck out our bottom lip, guess what? You are forfeiting some of the wonderful, blessed privileges that have been purchased for you by the Lord, your Savior, Jesus Christ. How does the Father work in us? Well, He does it through His Spirit, friends. Through a powerful operation. And it is God's Spirit, which is the token of our adoption into His family. And it is this Spirit that speaks to your conscience as a believer. And it is His Spirit that you directly cooperate with in order to pursue biblical sanctification. Listen how this beautiful harmony and cooperation between God's blessed Spirit that He gives His adopted sons and daughters and the regenerated Christian cooperate together to pursue holiness. In your sermon notes, Romans 8, 13-15, the Catechism cites this scripture as well. And it says, If we live after the flesh, okay, just context here, of course, he's talking to Christians, right? Paul's talking to those who claim to have been justified by the free grace of God. Uh, God. He has spent the entire epistle of Romans delineating and being very clear how someone is born again, by what grounds they are justified. Having established that, he goes here to Romans 8, and he gets into this idea that I think really supports this cooperative role that you as adopted sons and daughters have with the blessed Spirit of God in order to pursue holiness. If we live after the flesh, he says, we shall die. But if ye through the Spirit, if ye, ye, you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. No, you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. Justification has to be firmly and clearly understood. We're leading up to what is the biblical sanctification talked about in verse 14. A support to help us to see it clearly for what it is. And then to excite us to pursue it is a proper understanding of what you've been given in your adoption. And now, 
we're ready to consider sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification, as you see in your sermon notes, is a work, again, of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and we are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. The Catechism cites as a scripture proof, proof, you have it in your notes there, Ephesians 3, 23-24. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Here's this call. Here's this, you could say, new covenant command also. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I also gave you Romans 6, 4-6. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism. I'm not going to turn this into a, a baptism uh, you know, sermon, but, but notice here, friends, very clearly, the New Testament tells us what the ordinance and the sacrament of baptism, what it signifies. Therefore, you're buried with Him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk and newness of life. Well, of course we should. We have been born again. We have been given newness of life. We have been given His Spirit. We have been made children of light from out of darkness. Of course, this text Paul would write, you should walk in newness of life. For you, if ye have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And here it is with justification, adoption, and sanctification that we begin to see as if it were a golden chain of the gospel. These links of the chain of the gospel, friends, they are inseparably connected. And they powerfully bind together the whole of the gospel message that Jesus claimed when he was on earth. As you see in your notes, to remove any one of these three links, one jeopardizes the symbiotic harmony and unbroken wholeness of the gospel. In other words, you cannot have justification without holiness. You cannot have holiness without adoption. And you can't have adoption without justification or sanctification. It is the whole gospel harmonious communicated from Jesus and the disciples. This is what's in the New Testament. So why do we do all of that groundwork, friends? Because before we move forward, understanding and admonishing and, and, and asking God to help us to grow in this biblical sanctification. Friends, we are standing on safe and biblical ground. We are rightly handling God's Word here at verse 14. There is a sanctification. There is a holiness that we are to pursue as those who have been justified, adopted into His family. And we know it depends solely upon His Spirit. It is now particularly, and I'm running out of time, this third link in the gospel that's called sanctification that we are going to put the gospel bus in park and dwell on for a while. At least today 
and probably I thought it was just going to be one more sermon and maybe two more. Because why? Because it's the answer. It's the answer to the question in verse 14. What is the biblical holiness that's being talked about? The biblical holiness that is being talked about that you are commanded, I am commanded to pursue is the biblical sanctification that we just considered. And as you see in your notes, it might be helpful to know this word translated in the authorized version as holiness is oftentimes translated in modern translations as sanctification. It's just as frequently translated that way. So in the modern translations will read pursue peace with all mankind and also pursue sanctification. Notice in your notes what sanctification, this or sometimes translated holiness, what this word carries with it. It carries with it the idea of purification and sanctification of the heart and one's life. We are to pursue holiness, purification. We are to pursue, earnestly pursue, a sanctification of our hearts and our lives. I have a challenge here now in my sermon of which direction I'm going to go. I think what I'm going to do is just do this. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make one observation of landing on what true biblical holiness and sanctification is in comparison to some of the theological errors and then introduce next week's sermon somewhat by some questions that will be answered as we begin to unpack biblical sanctification. We will look at it in the Old Testament. We're going to look at it in the New Testament. And it's going to resolve, or it's going to resolve. It's going to resolve in something, I hope. Uh, But it's going to revolve around that umbrella that I told you that Thomas Brooks sets forth, that true Christian happiness, joy in a Christian's life, a lively joy and happiness is inseparably connected to your sanctification and your holiness. Notice with me that this three-pronged approach to the answer, it details for us the supporting roles of God the Trinity in how we are made holy. It's the Father's election. It's the Father's dispensing of His free grace. It's the Son's sacrifice upon the cross and His righteousness so that we could be afforded that righteousness. Notice with me uh, how the Holy Spirit is the person in the Trinity that applies God's righteousness, or Christ's righteousness, sorry, through regeneration and faith alone. And so this answers for us, especially in the first half of the message, of what the source of biblical holiness is. The source of it is God. The basis of it is His sovereign free love and grace. So it is not what we do that makes us holy. It is God who loves us and sends His grace forth in our hearts that makes us ultimately holy. It provides us, I believe, looking at this, with the overall causality of our adoption as sons by God our Father. The overall causality. Why did God save you? Well, I can guarantee you this, friends. He did not save us to leave us in the condition He found us. No, He is a loving Father. He loves us way too much for that. And He wants us to partake, in verse 10, of the good things that He has for His adopted sons and daughters. And so through His Spirit, He will begin sanctification. Through His Spirit, He will grow And He will bring more holiness and sanctification into our lives. 
having in our previous message recognized the, the vitality and correctly identifying what is holiness being described in verse 14 and now having properly defined it, we're going to begin to spend some time next Sunday rightly understanding this holiness which we're commanded to pursue by observing certain things that will answer these sorts of questions. Does this biblical sanctification of holiness occur on a more practical level or is it more of a sensational, emotional, spiritual experience that I have, the sanctification that's being talked about? Like, like, like how does it look? How does the biblical sanctification that I'm talking about and that God wants us to pursue, how does it feel? How does pursuing it look like? How does it feel? What are some of the hindrances to pursuing this sort of holiness and sanctification that I, as an adopted son or daughter, need to be on guard on? What are some of the common pitfalls that those who, correct the, those who possess a correct understanding of justification and a correct understanding of adoption, what are some common pitfalls that those who are on that solid gospel ground fall into when it comes to sanctification. In other words, their gospel chain, the last link of sanctification has become a little tarnished, you could say. And they need to get the, the, the what's the stuff called? I don't know, that takes off tarnish, off gold and precious metals. I used to, my grandmother, I remember the advertisements on TV, she used to always get caught up and buy that stuff, you know. But anyways, anyways, uh, Tarnax, I think it's called. You know, how, 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 what are some common pitfalls that, that we need to get out the, the Tarnax? Right? And, and polish off that last link of sanctification and look at it. We'll look at some of those common pitfalls. And then we'll also look at some things doctrinally that encourage us and excite us to pursue biblical sanctification. Uh, friends, I want to just close with this last thought um, from Charles Spurgeon. I come across this and I thought this was just so fitting for some of the things that we've considered today. Spurgeon says this, I beg you to notice and carefully consider the value which God sets upon real holiness. Since the three persons are represented as co-working to produce a church that will be presented unto him without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Men who despise biblical holiness correctly understood from the heart are in direct conflict with God, end quote. We as creatures of the dust can, understandably so, brothers and sisters, we can become apathetic and lethargic when the topic of personal holiness and sanctification comes up. But all dear church, let us, however, lift up hands which hang down Let us strengthen feeble knees for where sanctification, the true and the biblical type, is void or is lacking, I can assure you from Scripture there will be a black hole and a vacuum which will suck all the blessedness and happiness out of what God has in store for you as one of His children. He will not leave you there, of course, in utter despair. Oh, but you can go so far, so far. And then by grace, his blessed hand will bring you under the administration of his word in texts like this and bring you back to what he truly has in store for you as one of his sons and one of his daughters. If you find yourself this morning indifferent, 
to a life-giving doctrine of biblical sanctification, I pray that the Spirit would prepare your heart for a surgery that only He can perform. And if you're here today and the talk and the ideas of biblical justification, of being saved, of being a sinner who is given the free grace of God, and these things are foreign concept to you. You have never experienced these things. Oh, I pray that you will take what has been said today and allow God to show you deeper truths of who you are before His holy, thrice majesty, and that you would come to Him and understand that even though all the world around you, whether it's your family context, whether it's the country you live in, is, shows signs of great turmoil and destruction, I pray that you would find that in Christ there is true peace, there is true rest. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O gracious Father, Lord, we pray that you would continue to instruct us in this blessed, important truth known as biblical sanctification, that, Lord, we would stand firmly upon who we are as your children in the right understanding of our adoption by you through your Son, Jesus. And I pray, O God, that we would, Lord, after we move out of this verse and this topic of sanctification, God, that we would be spurned on, that we would, O God, be encouraged unto, Lord, seeking your face, seeking your face in Christ, and, Lord, seeking you to, O Father God, Strengthen us in the areas which we are weak. And every person, as we'll learn next week, Lord, can, cannot claim an area of their life is yet unsanctified and, and needs with the help of the Spirit, as we learned in Romans, Lord, uh, the help of the Spirit to be mortified. And I pray as your sons and daughters, dear Lord, that you would help us to see that this biblical sanctification that you are calling us unto as your church, that it is vitally connected to the great benefits and the privileges that we have as your adopted sons and daughters. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would open our eyes, that you would do surgery within our hearts, and that, God, you would, Lord, lead us into the blessings that are in store for those who take seriously and want to take seriously and desire to pursue authentic sanctification. We need your help, Lord. We are frail as dust. And we plead, dear Lord, before your holy sovereign throne, your grace in our lives. Forgive us of our many sins, Lord. We ask that as we confess them, you would cover them under the blood of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, we would not make excuses. That we would not blame shift. But, oh God, that we would own our sins before your holy throne and one another. And, Lord, we know that there is forgiveness. There is restoration and repentance found in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus. We thank you, Father. And we bless you. And we ask that you would have your way with us in the remaining of the service. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.